Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Let's bow our heads together and ask for God's blessing. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now, especially in the wake of such devastation on the other side of the world, as well as the unseen tragedies surrounding us all the time in the city that we live in, around the neighbors that we work and go to school with, we pray, God, that you would give us peace and assurance of your sovereign reign and rule. For sometimes, Father, we look at the world around us and we cannot help but to be tempted to despair and to be so discouraged. God, we need you to be present here and now and every moment of our lives, but especially as your word is being preached so that we could hear our shepherd's voice guiding and leading us and assuring us that in spite of all the tragedies and sorrows that we face, in spite of all the tribulations and sufferings that we are enduring, you will reign and you will fulfill your promises. And therefore, the people of God can live out as people of hope and sharing that hope with those around us through the preaching of the gospel. And God, I pray that that would be truly our conviction, especially now as we sit at your feet to hear your word. And so, Lord, would you bless us now by blessing this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, back in 2019, uh, the Gallup poll did a massive study all over the world to discover that 85% of the global workforce hate their jobs. It's true. Over 85% of workers on this planet hate the work that they do for a living. That's a lot of people. Because that is so, that means it is highly likely that many of you sitting in this room either don't like your job now, didn't like your job before, or you will hate your job in the future. And those of you who are aspiring to be professionals one day, graduate students, university students, chances are you will have a period of your work life, maybe a prolonged one, where you will not enjoy the job that you are planning to do. Yeah. That's pretty scary. And the question that obviously this raises is why? Why do so many workers today do not enjoy the job, the work, the occupation that they currently reside or one day do? I came across an article a few years ago by Forbes magazine entitled Top Five Reasons Professionals Hate Their Work. And they give the following five reasons. Number one, the skills they need to use to succeed in their job feel difficult and uncomfortable for them. Number two, the rampant toxicity or crushing demands exhaust and depress them. Number three, the outcomes they're working on feel either meaningless or wrong. Number four, they sense they're made for something much better, more meaningful, and more exciting. Number five, they long to use different talents and leverage their creativity and engineering but have no idea how to do that and make the money they need. These are the top five reasons why so many workers today are unsatisfied, unhappy with the work that they are doing. And surprisingly, the article ends with these words, quote, in short, they, working professionals, know what they don't want, but have no idea what they do want or how to get it, end quote. In other words, many workers who are working today clearly know the jobs of work that they hate, but they're clueless as to the kind of work that would be so satisfying and meaningful to them. We're continuing our sermon series, METS, M-E-T-S, which stands for Members Equipped to Serve. And the whole point of this series is to look at the five crucial core ministries God calls every Christian to be a minister of. So far in this series, we looked at our personal ministry to God. Then we looked at our ministry to our family. And then a few weeks ago, we looked at our ministry to the church. Today, we look at number four, Christians' ministry to the world through the work that they do in the world. 
right? And the way that I want to approach this topic today is to consider what kind of jobs, what kind of work should Christians keep in mind as they go out into the world as disciples of Christ? Now, before I go any further, let me make sure that I set your expectations correctly. This sermon is not going to give you some magical formula you can plug into your life so that you can have this perfect job show up right before you. This sermon is not going to do that because the Bible does not do that. You know, so many young people today who are really eager to figure out what they should do with their life go to the Bible and study it intently, thinking there is some hidden biblical code or some hidden algorithm that if they could plug and discover upon their life, a perfect job will be manifested to them. I am sorry. The Bible does not do that because the Bible teaches us there's no such thing as a perfect job. Just like there's no such thing as the perfect man or the perfect woman, you know, the one, so also there's no such thing as the one when it comes to what you do on this earth through your work. Now, I know you're going to hear that, and that can be somewhat discouraging because it seems to exacerbate the problem at hand of trying to figure out what kind of work should I be doing for God as a follower of his? Well, I have good news. Good news in the sense that even though the Bible does not give us a magical formula, it does give us some biblical criteria that if we follow, we could discern not only the jobs that we should avoid, but also jobs we should strongly consider that maybe in the past we've never considered before so that we can fulfill the main job Christians are to do as they live in this world. Love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love neighbor as themselves. So with that in mind, three criteria the Apostle Paul is going to give us that we need to consider so that we can know the kind of work we should be open to. Criteria number one, do work that makes you quiet. Do work that makes you quiet. Criteria number two, do work that meets a real need. And finally, criteria number three, do work that goes to unexpected places. Three criteria you need to consider, Christian, so that you could discern the kind of work that you could do that is pleasing to God. Do work that makes you quiet. Do work that meets a real need. Do work that goes to unexpected places places. Let's begin with the first criteria. Do work that makes you quiet. Let's skip down to the bottom of our section of our passage. Starting in verse 10, it reads this, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly. Now, I'm not particularly satisfied with this English translation of Paul's original Greek words, so I actually want to read to you another version that I prefer, the NIV, which reads as follows, yet we urge you brothers and sisters to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life what in the world does that mean that's such a weird statement especially that phrase quiet life and furthermore what does any of this have to do in figuring out the question of hand the kinds of jobs the kinds of work that God's people should consider doing well in order to begin to answer those series of questions you have to zero in on that word ambition ambition now I know as New Yorkers we may think we know what ambition is because we see it all the time. We see it with our classmates as they scurry around on campus. We see it with our coworkers as they're scrambling at their desk at the office. But do we actually know what ambition is? Just because you recognize it doesn't mean you really know what it is. So do you know what it is? Well, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, let me read to you a definition of ambition that I came upon that I think really hits the nail on the head. This actually comes from one of our former presidents in the United States. The second one, do you remember? John Adams. He says this, quote, Ambition is the natural passion for distinction, a desire to be seen, heard, talked of, approved, and respected by the people about him. This 
is ambition. It's this insatiable desire to be so distinguished by the work that you do that people will notice you, people make a big deal of you, people applaud you and give you such loud fanfare. That's ambition. Now, when you hear that, it makes it even more perplexing when you consider what Paul says we are to be ambitious for. We are to be ambitious in leading a quiet life? That makes no sense. Because if you think about the ambitious people that you personally know, they don't usually fit the description of a quiet person, do they? Case in point, a few years back, I was reading the Huffington Post, and I stumbled upon an article entitled, On Being Quiet and Asian. On being quiet and Asian, the journalist, who's an Asian-American herself, talks about how all throughout her life she lived out that stereotype of being that quiet Asian person. And she recounted how when she was at college, at university, how her various classmates and non-Asian friends looked upon her. And these were some of the things that she heard them say about people like her. Quote, the quiet Asians are always studying and they take the best seats in the library. Or the quiet Asians never hang out with anyone else. Or the Asians never talk in class. It's so creepy. <laughs> this author goes on to tell a personal story how during her freshman year, she decided to go to a house party that one of her classmates were throwing. And when she shows up, the host, the classmate goes, hey, one of the Asian quiet kids came to the party. Hooray. Right? What's the point? The point is this, trying to live a quiet life and yet trying to be ambitious at the same time seems virtually impossible. How in the world can you try to be ambitious when most people around you don't even know that you're there? It just seems that what Paul is telling us to do is virtually impossible, especially when it comes to the kind of work that we do. Or is it? Consider this quote from Pastor Tim Keller on what he says on this matter. This is from his book, Every Good Endeavor. He writes, quote, We all work for an audience, whether we are aware of it or not. Some perform to please parents, others to impress peers, others to win over superiors, while many do what they do strictly to live up to their own standards. All of these audiences are inadequate. Working for them alone will lead to overwork or underwork, sometimes a mixture of the two, based on who is watching. But Christians look to an audience of one, our loving Heavenly Father, and that gives us both accountability and joy in our work. What is Dr. Keller saying? He's saying that as Christians, we should be ambitious in our work, not so that we can get the loud, rearing applause of the people around us, but so that we would get the notice and the applause of the singular person known as our God. In other words, we should work to where we would be noticed and seen by our God and we could care less on whether or not we get the roaring applause of our peers, of our boss, of our parents, and so forth. That is the first criteria we should consider when we think about what kind of job should I do in this world as a follower of God? What kind of job will get me not the loud fanfare and notice of everyone where they're going to applaud me, but where our God would notice and be pleased with what I do in his name. And yet, here's the sad truth. So many Christians in the church, when they think about what kind of job they do, the people they think of more than anyone else are the people around them. In fact, for some of you, you guys are currently doing a job or you're studying to do a job because mommy and daddy told you all throughout your life, you should do it. You should be a lawyer, son. I think you should be a doctor, honey. You should take over my business when you're done, all right? So often we let our parents determine and dictate what God has called us to do. Go into pharmacy, go into accounting, go into business. And yet we never consider 
what does my Lord <coughs> have to say about this? Others of us will do certain jobs or will be open to it because that's what our peers and our culture says is the hip and happening jobs. That's the kind of jobs that get you the influence, the likes, the notice, the status, you see? Or maybe some of us consider the kind of jobs that will get the attention of maybe someone later on in our life to where we could settle down and start a home one day. So often we look everywhere around us amongst our peers to dictate and determine what jobs we're open to and what we're not. And the one person we never even consult, we never consider when it comes to what I should be doing vocationally is who Paul says we need to be thinking about more than anything to the point where you never hear any applause from them. You're leading a quiet life because that's how much you could care about the applause of the people around you. You don't. Now, if you're here today investigating Christianity, you might be wondering, Pastor, so what? What's the big deal? Who cares if people decide or determine the kind of jobs that they do based on getting as much applause and fanfare from their peers or from society? Why is that so bad? Or maybe a better way to put it, what's so special about just living for the audience of one when it comes to the kind of work that you do? What's so special of leading that quiet life? Well, to answer, let's go back to that quote from Dr. Keller. Can we put that back up there for just a moment? Look at what he says happens when people are more concerned about what people think, whether it be their parents, their peers, society, the opposite sex, to dictate and determine the kind of work that they do. You end up with work that what? overworks and underworks, right? In both instances, it results in what? Work that isn't great. One of the things that the scripture teaches us is when all you care about in terms of the kind of work that you do is based on how cool and hip and um, influential you look, you end up doing work that isn't great. And this is something that even great business gurus have discovered in their studies. In this New York Times best-selling book, Good to Great, the author Jim Collins did a profile of all the great corporations that are out there. We're talking about the best of the best, the cream of the top, you know, the influencers, the ones who for decades always hit their bottom line and then some. He wanted to know what make these corporations and companies so stellar, so amazing. It turns out they all have something in common. They're all led by what he calls level five leaders. And as he did a close analysis of these kinds of folks, he came to a shocking discovery. Take a listen to what he says, quote, we were struck by how the good to great leaders didn't talk about themselves. During interviews with the good to great leaders, they talk about the company and the contributions of other executives, but would deflect discussions about their own contributions. It wasn't just false modesty. Those who worked with the good to great leaders continually use words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild manner, self-effacing, understated, and so forth. The 11 good to great CEOs in our study are some of the most remarkable CEOs of the century. Yet despite their remarkable results, almost no one ever remarked about them. They were seemingly ordinary people quietly producing extraordinary results. End quote. The best workers that are out there today who are making the biggest difference those who are extraordinary happen to be whom Paul says that we as Christians should be working like. We should be being ambitious of leading a quiet life, which means we could care less of what the people around us have to say, whether through their loud applause, their roaring praises. Instead, they just focus on the work itself. By the way, do you know that is one of the consequences of when you make it your ambition to lead a quiet life? 
You don't focus on the work in terms of optics. You focus on the work in terms of the substance. You don't care about whether this work makes you look good. You look for work that is good. Or to put it more simply, when you make it your ambition to lead a quiet life vocationally, you will look for work that doesn't make you look important. You will look for work that is important. But of course, that begs the question. What kind of jobs, what kind of work is important? Isn't that somewhat of a subjective opinion? Well, no, it's not. The Bible would tell us work can be important or it can be superficial. And as Christians, we want to make sure we're doing the former and not the latter. How? Well, the answer leads me to my next point. Do work that meets a real need. Read again with me verse 10 and all of 11. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, in order to fully understand what Paul is getting at with this whole minding your own business and working with your own hands is you have to know a little bit of the background to the church he's writing to, okay? According to New Testament scholars, the Christians living in this church Paul was writing to, the city of Thessalonica, were filled with Christians who were somehow convinced that the second coming of Christ was like days away, like right around the corner. And just like seniors think it's pointless to do any work the last few days of their senior year, these Christians felt it was pointless to do any work on the last few days of human history. And because they weren't occupied doing an occupation, what were they doing? Two things, according to scholars. Number one, they were going around mooching off of people. Hey, you know, Jesus is coming around, but I, I, I don't have any food. Can, can you give me some food? I, I, my bills are paid. I know Jesus is coming around, but can you help me pay my electric bill? They didn't have electric bill. You know what I'm saying, right? They were mooching off of others. And secondly, they were getting involved in each other's business, gossiping, being busybodies, creating such drama and division within the church. Right? And by behaving this way, they started developing a certain belief about God's attitude towards the world. And if I could put that belief into words, it would go like this. Hey, this world's going to end sooner or later, most likely sooner, so why bother? God could care less if we do any good, productive work in this world, so we're not going to bother. And yet listen to what Paul says in verse 11. Mind your own affairs and work with your hands. By directly contradicting the behavior of these Christians, he's also directly contradicting the belief that behavior was creating in their minds. In a nutshell, Paul is saying, no, you idiot. God loves this world, and he wants his people to do good work in it so that the world is better off than it was before that work happened. And that is the second criteria, Christian, when it comes to what you should consider of the kind of work that you do in this world. You need to ask yourself before you apply for that position, is this work actually bringing some good? Is it bringing blessing? Is it going to do a good work in this world that was not there before? Now, I know you hear that and you're like, Pastor, I've been hearing that since elementary school, right? Change the world. Make it a better place. Think of Michael Jackson song, right? Yeah. What does that even mean? It's so vague. It's so vast. How could we know a certain occupation it actually is going to make the world a better place. Well, I came across a book years ago that I think is stellar. In fact, it's still in print, and it gets reprinted every single year. By the way, you know a book is hot. Is that what they use today? Or it's happening? Oh, my gosh. It's fire. No, I meant to say it's fire. I know it had something to do with, like, hotness. You know a book is fire when it gets a new edition every – don't laugh, guys. I'm trying to keep up, all right? right? The title of the book, What Color Is Your Parachute? Have you guys heard of it? It's written by a former minister named Richard Boles, and in his book, he says that there are eight characteristics or eight values that if you meditate on will help you see the kinds of jobs that actually make a good difference in the world. 
As I read these to you, it's a little bit long, but bear with me. I think it will be beneficial. Ask yourself, which of these values really tug at your heart and bring you to a point of interest? Take a listen to what he says. Number one, mind. Is the human mind your concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be more knowledge, truth, or clarity in the world because you were here? If so, what kind of knowledge, truth, or clarity in particular? Number two, body. Is the human body your major concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be more wholeness, fitness, or health in the world? More binding up of the body's wounds and strength? More feeding of the hungry? Clothing of the poor because you are here? If so, what issue concerning the body do you want to work on? Eyes and other senses. Are the human senses your major concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be more beauty in the world because you were here? If so, what kind of beauty entrances you? Is it art, music, flowers, photography, staging, crafts, clothing, jewelry, or what that you want your life to contribute towards? Heart. Is the human heart your major concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be more love and compassion in the world because you were here? If so, love or compassion for whom or for what? The will or conscious. Is the human will or conscious your major concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be more morality, more justice, more righteousness, more honesty in the world because you were here? Entertainment. When you are gone, do you want there to be more lightening of people's loads, more giving them perspective, more helping them to forget their cares for a spell? Do you want there to be more laughter in the world and joy because you were here? Possessions. Is the often false love of possessions your major concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be better stewardship of what we possess as individuals, as a community, as a nation, in the world, because you were here? Do you want to see simplicity, savings, and a broader emphasis on the word enough rather on the word more? And finally, the earth. Is the planet on which we stand your major concern? When, you gone, when you're gone, do you want there to be more protection of this fragile planet, more exploitation? exploration of the world or the universe exploration not exploitation more dealing with its problems and its energy because you were here is so which problems or challenges in particular draw your heart and soul these are some very helpful categories to think about to get you to think of what particular occupation god may be summoning you to do in this world now i know you probably read this list as i did and you think well i like this i like that I like that, and I like that one, too. <laughs> PJ, this isn't helpful. You're just making us paralysis analysis, folks, here. Right? There's so much stuff. What could I possibly do to figure out what I can do with my one singular life? I can't do all of this, right? Well, maybe Pastor Tim Keller can help once again. In his book, he says that there are three filters that we should put upon the various opportunities or possibilities of, of jobs that we might be interested in. He calls it the affinity ability and opportunity paradigm affinity ability and opportunity paradigm first affinity which simply asks the question what do you like to do do you like to talk do you like to listen do you like to fix problems do you like to make problems for certain people right for their good do you like to draw do you like to write poetry what do you like what activity doesn't require any sort of external pressure or any financial incentive to get you to want to do it what motivates and inspires you to activity okay that's affinity number two ability what are you good at what do other people say you're good at are you good at cooking are you good at cleaning are you good at okay this is going a direction i don't want it to go are you good at building skyscrapers? oh that's better are you good at studying Right? What do people say you are good at? That's ability. And then, of course, opportunity. Look at your current circumstances and the limits that you have, the responsibilities you have to people outside of your work. Look at the current marketplace and what's available and what's not. And as you do, maybe you'll see 
that certain occupations are more reasonable and viable right now, that other ones you might be interested simply are not in the cards. When you apply this grid of affinity, ability, and opportunity, chances are you'll be able to single out out of a whole pool of possible occupations that may be the one that God is saying, that right there, that's what I want you to do for me in my name. It's a lot of stuff to process, right? And at this point, you may think, Pastor, is there anything else that you can say? Well, yes, because Paul tells us another final criteria we need to consider to know what kind of job we should do for him. And this leads me to my final point, which is do work that goes to unexpected places. Read again with me verse 9 and the middle of verse 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Now, when you first read these words, you may think that this has no relevance whatsoever to the topic at hand, which is figuring out what kind of job we should be doing for God. But, oh, it is very, very relevant. Why? Because of this reference to a city in verse 10, the city of Macedonia. Macedonia? Macedonia. Macedonia. You guys have ever heard that phrase before? Location, location, location. What do people mean when they use that phrase? Don't they mean that the best real estate, the best property are only found in the best places? Yes, of course. Surprisingly, a lot of people will take that same concept and apply it to where they think the best jobs and the best work is found as well. The best jobs, the best work is only found in the best places, the best schools, the best institutions, the best companies, the best corporations, which conversely means when you consider the kind of jobs that you should avoid, they're the ones that are in the not-so-impressive organizations, the not-so-attractive cities, the not-so-happening places that are out there today. Yeah, we're going to avoid those kinds of places. Surely God could never call me to such a mediocre place. But the fact that Paul references Macedonia completely refutes that idea. Let me explain. If you read the book of Acts, there you'll read the Apostle Paul's various missionary journeys. And when you come to chapter 16, there you see him embarking on his second missionary journey. And here's the thing. Paul knew he was a pretty big deal. I mean, he was a humble guy, but he could obviously see God endowed him with spectacular gifts, spectacular abilities, and spectacular talent. And he wanted to make sure that he stewarded all this by going to the most strategic places and hence the best places that he thought he could truly do the best for God. And so he had a list of his favorite places that he wanted to get to to preach the gospel as a missionary. And the first best place, number one spot for him, you know where? Asia. Good old, I knew there's a reason why I like Paul, right? He wanted to go to Asia. That was his first choice, right? But then listen to what happens as he begins this journey. Starting in verse 6 of Acts 16, it says, Next, Paul and Silas traveled throughout the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then came to the borders of Mysia. They headed north for the province of Bithynia, but again, the Spirit of God did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas, and that night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading or begging him, come to Macedonia, help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Here's what's happening. Paul's first point, place of interest was Asia. God closes the door. What is he going to do? All right, I'll go to my second best choice. I'm going to go to Bithynia. And again, God closes the door, right? And what does he do then? He just wanders around, ends up in the seaport city of Troas, and he doesn't know what to do then. 
And then at that point, God visits him in the form of a dream where a man from Macedonia is begging him, please come, come here, right? Here's my question. Why does it take a supernatural intervention from God for Paul to even consider Macedonia? The most likely reason is, for whatever reason, Macedonia was simply not appealing to him. Yeah. Macedonia wasn't good enough. It wasn't cool enough. It wasn't sexy enough. It certainly didn't match the status and caliber that he possessed. It was a place unworthy of someone like Paul. Yeah, let, let Peter go, right? Or let someone else go, but, but not the Apostle Paul, not me, right? So often, many Christians assume that because God has blessed them and endowed them in such a way that even people around them say, hey, you're a pretty big deal, that that must mean, surely, I'm supposed to go only to the best places, right? The best cities, the best companies, the best corporations. But consider this statement from Pastor James Boyce. He says, each person must answer to his or her master individually. That means we must ask God what his will for us is. Remember that God may direct you to use your talents, even talents of an extraordinary nature in humble surroundings and for the good of very simple people, end quote. Just because you're pretty happening, just because you are gifted, just because you are competent, just because you are capable of making it and holding your own at the best of the best institutions doesn't mean God is calling you there. It is highly possible and highly likely that God would take your big deal self and take you to a big, unbig deal place, a place that isn't that big of a deal, a place that isn't that impressive, a, pers- a place that may not even be worthy of the kind of stature and caliber of work that you can produce. Why would God do that? What kind of thing is God thinking here? Listen again to what it says in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Love. Brotherly love. God may have gifted you with incredible skills, with impeccable talent, not so that you would go to the best places, but so that you could love unique people in some of the places that no one else wants to go to. Because he wants you to love those people there. Now you hear that, and Christian, should that really shock you? It shouldn't. Why? Because that's exactly how our God works. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel tells us that the most impressive, the most important, the biggest person of all, the biggest deal person of all, God, came into the world as a human being, as Jesus Christ, and he made it his ambition to lead a quiet life. You know, it's hard for us to believe now because Jesus is the most famous person on earth. It's true. I Googled it last night. He is literally the most famous person on earth. But you know, when he was walking on this earth, no one of any significance, of any power or influence even knew he existed, which probably explains why you don't see his name outside of the immediate circles of the Bible, right? And that's on purpose because our Lord, when he lived on this earth, made his ambition to lead a quiet life. Why? Because he came to do the most important work of all, of bringing salvation to sinners like you, like me, people who are not worthy of the stature of work that he did for us. Why? So that, yes, we can be forgiven of our sins if we repent. So, yes, we can have the hope of eternal life if we make Jesus our Lord and Savior, but so that he could love us with brotherly love, right? Jesus came to do the work, 
not to be in the halls of Rome, not to be in the best places of the empire, but so that he can go to one of the most obscure places of all the empire. Israel, God, really? You're going to go in as an Israelite and live amongst Israelites, right? Yes. So he can love people who could not even properly recognize how awesome and what a big deal he really is, just so he could love them with brotherly love. The third criteria that you should consider, Christian, when it comes to the jobs that you are called to do is who are the people that I could reach and impact and love because that's how my God saw me when he did his work. Thank God that he didn't require me to be be amongst the best of the best or be a best of the best myself or live in the best of the best places. He came to me when I was unworthy to have him around and to be a recipient of his great work. When you grasp that, then you will understand why God calls us to do certain jobs that the world may say, that makes no sense. Why would someone like you, why have someone of your stature, of your caliber, why are you wasting your talents on that? Because my God did for me, and it wasn't a waste. It was a sign of his grace, and that's what I'm here to do. My main job is to be like my God, to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. That's my job. That is your job. Do you guys get that? I love how Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, there are some needs only you can see. There are some hands only you can hold. There are some people only you can reach. Could it be that the reason why God gave you your spectacular talents and gifts and intelligence isn't so that you can make a name for yourself and get a loud, roaring applause, but instead that you can live a quiet life and make a profound impact that does work that is really good so that you can end up loving those who the world says, not worth it, but Jesus says, they are worth it because I gave my life for them. My challenge to you aspiring professionals is maybe rethink some of the questions that you're trying to answer to determine the kind of work that you do. Instead of saying, what's going to give me the best job in terms of finance, in terms of attraction, in terms of place in society, maybe you should think of these categories that Paul tells us today. And for those of you who are working right now, maybe you need to reevaluate why you do the work that you do. And ask yourself, maybe the reason why I'm not so happy, even though the world says I should because I got the car, I got the house, but I just don't seem to have the applause of God, which is definitely silent in the midst of the roaring applause I get right now from the world. Could it be that God is calling you to think differently in terms of how you work in this world? My hope and prayer is that you would seriously consider that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be with us as we seek to be a blessing in this world. Father, we forget that we use our talents and our gifts more to get the applause of the people around us so that we could be blessed rather than hunger and craving the applause of the great audience of our triune God. Father, have mercy on us for the way in which we have allowed the categories of this demonic world dictate and determine what we spend a majority of our lifetime doing. Father, would you help us instead to humble ourselves and to see the kind of work that truly is pleasing to you, a work that allows us to make a real difference and a work that allows us to love those who you have given your life for. Father, help us to see this clearly more than ever 
so that we would spend every wor working hour maximizing all that you give to us for the purposes in which you gave it for, which is to love you and to love our neighbor. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.